God's word and hand turning with me to the Gospel of John. That's the Gospel of John, where today we'll be studying together chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then skipping over and reading verse 14. That's John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5, and then verse 14. Hear now the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. As I've just mentioned, I love Christmas. Everything about it. I spent way too much time putting up a Christmas tree. I'll be spending a good bit of this week decorating the outside of the house. I love the music. I love the hustle. I love the bustle. I love the gifts, but the ones I get and the ones that I'm able to give to others, I absolutely love it. I probably especially love the music, though, especially especially the hymns. Uh, my favorite is, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, and I think it really highlights, I think, one of the most amazing things about Christmas. And I mentioned this before the service, is that when you get around Christmas time, it is as if the world that is apart from God, that is apart from faith, actually comes alongside of the Christian church and begins to share the gospel. This, uh, this, this, this came to my mind, this was... Uh, Years ago, I'm walking through a department store, and I hear the words of, 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 uh, of Hark the Herald Angels sing that says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. I got to go into a Hallmark store and listen to Frank Sinatra evangelize the world. How incredible is that? But it's not just the hymns that I like. I also really love just the regular secular Christmas songs, like, like Let It Snow and things like that. But there's one that's always kind of stood out in my head, and it's the song, um, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, particularly because there's one little line in that song that for the life of me has never made any sense. As when the song goes, there will be scary ghost stories and tales of old glories. What in the world does a ghost story have to do with Christmas? Well, the answer is it actually doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. It doesn't have anything to do with the birth of Christ. What it has to do is with an ancient tradition that was passed on from people who lived in really northern Europe. Northern Europe has very, very cold winters. Very, very short days and very, very long nights. During the winter time, especially when you got around the Christmas season, 
you didn't have a lot of daytime. And so the people who would go out and work, they wouldn't work very long. They'd work until it got dark, and then they would go home into the dark houses. They would light a fire. They would gather around that fire. And what does that kind of fire and darkness inspire? Spooky stories. Ghost stories. There's something about the darkness, the, the peering into the unknown, that inspires this, this idea and this sense of mystery. The Bible is also full of mysteries and mysteries in abundance. The Bible doesn't tell you everything. I, I was listening to a debate the other day between a Christian scientist and, a, and an atheist scientist, and the atheist said that he was utterly unimpressed with the Bible because the Bible didn't tell him anything about microbiology. I heard that, and I'm like, why would you... Why would you think it would tell you something about microbiology? I used to get a question a lot from students when I taught. Like, well, why doesn't the Bible say anything about, about dinosaurs? Well, you can argue that in Job you have Leviathan and Behemoth. Maybe those are dinosaurs. But even if it's not dinosaurs, the Bible doesn't say anything about kangaroos either. It doesn't tell you everything. The Bible is not about the mysteries of kangaroos, the mysteries of dinosaurs, the mysteries of microbiology. The Bible is about the greatest mystery in the cosmos, God. God is the greatest mystery of the cosmos. I mentioned this in my prayer. Just, just think about the attributes of God. He's all-powerful. I, I can hardly get out of bed. I blew my nose last night and couldn't stand up for like 20 minutes. I'm not omnipotent. I'm also not all-knowing. This morning at, at, at Sharon, I forgot the words to, uh, uh, to the doxology. I'm like, well, what am I singing? I'm not all-knowing. I'm not all-knowing. And even in, the, the, even in the times that we think we know what we're talking about, when we say that God is eternal, we have no clue what that means. No idea what it means to be eternal. We, talk, we ask the question, you know, is, did God exist before time? And the, the correct answer is yes, but that doesn't make sense. He existed before time. The word before is a temporal word. It assumes the existence of time. But we were talking about a time before time. It doesn't make any sense. That is a mystery. And then we look into the being of God. There's even more mystery. There is one God and one God only in three persons, distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Distinct persons, yet they are the one God. I don't understand that. That is a glorious mystery. And now we come to our text today, and John just kind of brings his shovel, and he starts digging the hole of mystery even deeper, because now we come to the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, divine, co-equal with God, equal in majesty and glory and power. The Father is divine, the Son is divine, the Spirit is divine, but the Son takes to himself a second nature. He empties himself, coming in the form of a servant. And he does that without ceasing to be divine. He is still divine. And yet he takes to himself a human nature without blending, without mixing or confusion. What that means is in the humanity of the Son, you have no deity. 
and the deity of the Son, you have no humanity. Yet the human and the divine are the one Son of God. That is mind-blowing. And unfortunately, that, that, that actually repels a lot of people from thinking about these things from meditating and dwelling upon the mysteries of the incarnation of the Son of God. And the fact is, it shouldn't. This should be a magnet to your heart. And so as I, told, as I said in the children's sermon, mystery is not a bad thing. Mystery is a glorious thing. I can't remember who said it. Uh, it might have been one of my professors in seminary. It might have just been something that I read. But it said, if I could, un- the person said, if I could understand everything there is to know about God, I'm not sure I would be able to worship him. It was the mystery that drew, that drew this person into the worship of God. This morning, we have a great mystery that is laid before us. The mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of Christ, the God-man. And so this morning, I want us to peer into this. We won't be able to get to every single part of it. When I used to lecture on this in school, this was, this was about six hours worth of stuff, and that was only scratching the surface. But hopefully, by the grace of God, this will set the stage for the next three weeks. This is the introduction to Advent. This is the introduction to Christmas. This is the introduction to the incarnation. So I want to look at this part, this text in two parts. First, I want us to look at the deity of Christ in verses one through five. And then secondly, I want us to look at the incarnation of Christ in verse 14. So the deity, and then secondly, the humanity or the incarnation of Christ. Let's begin by rereading verses one through five. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There are a lot of titles for Jesus in the Bible. The most popular one for Jesus himself was the Son of Man. He also refers to himself as being the Son of God. He is also referred to in the New Testament as being the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Lots of different titles for Jesus. But one that is unique to John is when he calls him the Word. Why does John call Jesus the Word? To understand that, you need to understand the world in which John lived. John was Jewish by birth. He was also Jewish by location and by religion. He would have worshipped in the temple. He would have obeyed the Sabbath. He would have made pilgrimages. He would have made sacrifices. But the world in which he lived was the Israel in which he lived was not the Israel of his forefathers. He did not worship in Solomon's temple. He worshipped in Herod's temple. His king was not from the tribe of Judah. His king was from the Edomites, Herod. Even the language that he spoke was different. No one spoke Hebrew in the days of Jesus. A lot of people don't know that. No one spoke Hebrew. If you walked into Israel, you would have heard people speaking Aramaic. 
And then if you would go and venture into the markets, you wouldn't even hear people speaking Aramaic. You'd hear people speaking the trade language, the lingua franca, the the bridge language that, that, that bound together all of these different peoples and nations and tribe. And that language was Greek. In fact, if you wanted to read the Old Testament in the days of Jesus, you probably could hardly find a Hebrew copy. You would have to read it in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of that. And so the Greek word that he uses here for Jesus is the word logos. And this is an immensely complex word. If you look in a Greek dictionary, uh, just different words, most words will only have about one paragraph of kind of definition. Some of the more complex words will have maybe three, maybe four paragraphs or something like that. Logos has pages dedicated to it. Pages. I've heard one scholar recently say that we probably just need to stop translating it and just let it be its own word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Why does he use the term Logos? I'm going to give you two reasons. The first reason is going to be Greek, and the second reason is going to be Hebrew. Let's begin with the Greek, with the, the Greek reason. To understand this, you've got to go back to about 500 B.C. and a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. Heraclitus, along with all the other philosophers, were obsessed with one thing, the problem of the one and the many. They looked out into the world, and they saw diversity, different people, different pews, different building, different trees, different plants, different crops, different animals, different, different stars, different planets, the moon, star, moon, sun, all this difference, all this many, many, many different things. And yet all of it made sense. What was the sense? What was the reason for this world? Why is it that we can, all this different stuff in it, it should be chaotic. And you can't understand chaos, but we live in an understandable world. We live in a reasonable world and we're reasonable people. So how is it that we can do that? Uh, Pythagoras, who came before Heraclitus, thought it was mathematics, that everything that you see could be broken down into a mathematical equation. But Heraclitus comes around and he says, well, wait a minute. Not everything that is true is material. I love. I have sadness. I have fear. There's a laws of reason and logic, and I can't see, feel, hear, or touch those things, and yet they are real. And therefore, he postulated the existence of something else. He didn't know what exactly what it was. He thought it was just some kind of impersonal thing. But he called it the Logos, the word. And what he meant by that is you can go out there and you can observe nature, do science and do study. And you can know things because you have reasonable ears that listen, that listen to the common speech of the world, the common words of nature. And we carry this along today. What, what do we call the fields of science? Biology. Logi. Logos. In biology, you hear life speak to you. In cardiology, you hear the heart speak to you. In, ge- in geology, you hear the earth speak to you. This is how Heraclitus understood the word world. We were reasonable creatures with ears, and we listened to the speech of nature. But as crafty as Heraclitus was, as close as he was, he wasn't quite there. Nor was he the first to ever think of something like this. The first to ever really write anything down about this goes back a lot further than Heraclitus. And he wasn't even Greek. He was Hebrew. He was a man that wrote these words. In the beginning 
God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. This is Moses that is writing this. And he writes those words in Genesis 1. That's what John is bringing our minds to. This is the Hebrew part of it. He begins this part. In the beginning was the word. He wants us to begin to stop thinking like a Greek and now start thinking like a Hebrew. In the beginning, God created. But how did he create? He spoke. He used words. He said, let there be light. And come rushing out of the darkness is light. And then he separates the sea from the sky and uh, uh, makes dry land. And then he, cre he creates the cosmos and the heavens. And then he begins to fill these things once again with his words, with life. He speaks and the, the, the seas begin to teem with life. The air begins to teem with the birds. And then the dry ground begins to teem with the beasts and the creepy crawling things. And then the crown jewel of that creation is man. And how does he create man? Once again, by speaking. But this time he doesn't speak to the ground. He doesn't speak to the sea. He doesn't speak into the heavens. He turns around. He speaks to himself. He says, let us make man in our own image. His words. We are made of words. The world is made of words. The cosmos is made of words. And they speak to us. What this means is, when you go out and observe nature, you hear the birds and the singing, and you look at the stars at night, if you're doing real science, if you're doing real study, it will be Christological. John is saying, that is the word. That is Jesus speaking to you. Through him, all things were made, and without him was nothing that was made. He is still speaking in nature. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It's speaking clearly and wonderfully martin luther no doubt with psalm 19 in mind says god writes the gospel not in the bible alone but also on trees and on flowers and clouds and stars life is a theological a christological experience it is christ who speaks through the heavens and the earth but this word this logos was so much more than the than Heraclitus or any Greek philosopher had ever imagined. Heraclitus thought that he was just, the, the Logos was just some impersonal thing, but John comes and he says, no, no, no. Close but no cigar. He's deeply personal. He was with God. Some translations like to render this passage as being, he was face to face with God. Which this means there's a close kindred spirit between the word and God. I have no doubt that this is what uh, is in John's mind when he writes in verse 14 that he had seen the glory of the Logos and the glory was that of the only son from the father. The word is the son of God, distinct from God, and yet he was God. He was both distinct from God and yet he was the same God. What this tells us is that Jesus Christ, the word of God, is the revelation of God. This is why Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You get to know something. You get to know someone through speech. Speech is how you know anything. 
It's how you know the mind, who a person is. A doctor could come in here and cut my head open, and he could see my brain, but he could not see my mind. But you're all seeing it right now. You're hearing my mind. You can't see in the brain matter, but you can hear it. I'm revealing it to you. I'm sharing myself. I'm sharing my heart with you. When you speak to others, you're sharing yourself with them. Jesus is the word of God. There are not roads to God. There is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is Jesus Christ because he is the word of God, making him known. Jesus is the true word of God. He reveals God to us truly because he is truly God. As the Nicene Creed says, Jesus, the son of God, is very God of very God. I can remember Derek Thomas once saying that there is, if you want, do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know who God is like? I'll tell you what God is like. He is Christ-like. There is no part of God that is not like Christ. If, there's, if you have an idea of God that doesn't seem to fit Jesus, that's, that's, not, that's not it. God is Christ-like because Christ is God. Any revelation apart from Jesus is tainted, deluded. It is a lying word that does not reveal the one true and living God. And so the word was in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. This is a profound mystery in and of itself. But the mystery only deepens when we come to verse 14. Now John moves our eyes away from the heavens and draws them back to earth so that we might behold the glory of the word made flesh, the glory incarnate. John writes in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. By saying that the word became flesh, John is not saying that the word ceased being God. God cannot cease to be. All things were made through him. All things are held together by the word of his power. If the word stops, nothing is held together. It all falls apart. He doesn't stop being God. So what, is it, what, what does he mean he became flesh? What it means is this is that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took to himself a second nature that was real and human and yet distinct from his divine nature without mixture or confusion. This is a complex thing to understand, but so is the Trinity itself. The Son of God took to himself a truly human nature without ceasing to be divine. And just how human did he become? Just how much flesh did he take on? When we begin to answer this question, a lot of people would become very uncomfortable. When I was in seminary, I became very uncomfortable thinking about this stuff. People in my class became very uncomfortable. But I want you to understand that all of this is not some weighty head game. It is necessary This is the foundation of the gospel itself. When the Son of God took to himself a human nature, it was fully human. According to his divine nature, Jesus was all-powerful, but according to his human nature, he 
had needs. He was dependent upon others. When he was a baby laying in that manger, he was dependent on his mother's milk for life. He wasn't self-subsistent like he was in his divine nature. The, the, uh, the, the hymn uh, Silent Night has a, has a section in there uh, where it says that Jesus did not cry. Hogwash. Babies cry. Jesus could not speak. If he wanted to be fed, if he was hungry, he had one way to let his mother know to, by crying. Your baby, mothers, your baby's crying. That's not a sin. They're born in sin. They're children of Adam, but that ain't a sin. They need to cry because they need food. Jesus himself cried. He needed his earthly father to save him from the wrath of Herod when he runs into Egypt. Jesus couldn't just hop out of the crib and go running into Egypt himself. He needed to be cared for. He needed to be provided for. And even later in life, he still needed food. He still needed water. He still needed rest. He still needed companionship. He had needs. Also, according to his divine nature, Jesus was eternal. But what we celebrate in Christmas is the eternal coming into time. The infinite becoming temporal. And according to his divine nature, Jesus was omniscient and all-knowing. But according to his human nature, his mind was limited to what was revealed to him or what he could observe. This throws a lot of people off. A lot of people think, well, Jesus just knew everything because he was God. He, he did not know everything because he was God. He was limited. Just as he was limited to a particular time and space, he was also limited in his knowledge. There are things that he did not know. When the woman comes and, and touches his garment, he feels power come out of him. What does he say? Who touched me? When his disciples come to him and say, when are you going to return? What does he say? I don't know. Luke says a couple of times in his gospel that Jesus grew in both stature and wisdom. He had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn the scriptures. He had to memorize the scriptures just like we do. He had to learn. He had to grow. This makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, but it is necessary. I, I like when Dr. Thomas uh, told a story in my Christology class. It's always, always stuck with me. He says, if you got into a time machine, and he went back to Galilee at the time of the ministry of Jesus, and he walked up to him, and he said, Jesus... What are the winning lotto numbers for December 2023? He would just look at you blankly because he doesn't speak English. Unless it was revealed to him by God, he did not speak English. He spoke Aramaic. He spoke a little Greek. He didn't speak English, and he, doesn't, he didn't know the lotto numbers. Unless it was revealed to him by the Spirit, he would not have known. He had a human mind. And these things that I'm talking about make us uncomfortable, but they really shouldn't. They should be glorious to us because if Christ Jesus was only human in part, then our salvation is only human in part. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And this is from the NIV. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Did you get that? He had to be made like us in every way in order 
so that for the purpose of making atonement for our sins, if he is only partly human, then we are only partly atoned for. We are only partly forgiven. He had to be made like us in every way imaginable, imaginable apart from sin. In order for God to fully save man, he had to become fully man. And so God the Father sent forth the Son and he made him like us in every way, in body and spirit and in mind, in order that we might be saved to the uttermost. That's the glory of Christmas. That's the glory of the incarnation. God become flesh to die for the sins of a wicked, wicked people. And I want to leave you with this fact so you can meditate on it so that you can digest it, so that you can be in awe of it. Do you know what the incarnation means? God became flesh, the eternal became temporal, the infinite became finite, the omnipotent one became weak, the Lord became a servant. That, that in itself is amazing. But what's more amazing is why he did it. According to his divine nature, Christ was immortal and capable of being touched by death. But according to his human nature, he wasn't just capable of dying. He did die. The one who could have destroyed you and destroyed everything that you hold dear became flesh so that he might be destroyed in your place. That is, there's mystery in the incarnation. But that is the glory of the incarnation. Do you know who you are before God? John says in this gospel, when Isaiah went to the throne room of God, that he beheld the glory of Jesus. And Isaiah was scared to death. And that God, that person, comes off of his throne he comes into the womb of a virgin. After nine months of being gestated, he is born and he is laying in the manger in a, in, a, in a stall full of barn animals. You know why? Because that's who he was. The son of God became the lamb of God. He was born in the house of a lamb because that's what he had come to do. He came in the form of a servant. He came in the form of a lamb. John says at the end of his gospel that he's writing all of this so that in his testimony you might believe that Christ is the son of God and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. The question is, do you believe this morning? You have been brought to the observation deck of a great ship and have peered into the ocean of the mystery of the incarnation. Now the question is, do you believe it? Are you awash and in awe of his magnificence and his magnitude? Do you feel small in his presence, but do you feel as if you have been lifted up high upon his shoulders as he bore you upon the cross? Do you believe? Are you in awe? Our Heavenly Father, this is not merely a season for gift-giving not merely a season for Santa Claus and pretty lights, although those are certainly wonderful things. Father, this is a, this is a season 
to be utterly astonished. To be still in your presence. To be still before your throne. And to say, as the great hymn says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We, I guess maybe because we say that all the time, it becomes just common, meaningless to us. Uh, Father, forgive us. Let it never become old or stale. But Father, by your spirit, may you infuse your life and your light in that message. May we never grow tired of it. May we always stand in awe of the fact that the Son of God became the Lamb of God. Father, would you do this for his sake? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.